Welcome to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas, my show that tries to bring a uniquely rational perspective to the important and controversial topics that we face as a society today. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Berkowitz, my colleague, the Tad and Diane Toby Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. In 2019 to 21, Peter served as the director of the State Department's policy planning staff in the Trump administration, executive secretary of the department's Commission on Unalienable Rights and senior advisor to the Secretary of State. Peter has won numerous prestigious awards, including being the 2017 winner of the Bradley Prize. Peter and I have a conversation about what's going on in Israel, the entire Middle East region, his perspective on the important Abraham Accords that were formed under the Trump administration, and his views on the Biden policies regarding the Middle East, Afghanistan, and elsewhere, including the impact, of course, on our country, the United States, and on international peace. So please stay tuned, and thanks for joining us. Peter, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be with you, Scott. Well, uh, I'm going to get right down to it. Uh, you're you're an expert on the Middle East and many other things. Um, the world, you know, as an innocent observer, seems to be in near total chaos. Conflicts are raging, really, uh, in many spots, armed as well as culturally, and I think inside the United States particularly, which is very disconcerting. But let's begin with Israel uh, and, you know, the overtly barbaric terrorist attacks on ordinary citizens, including children from a terrorist organization, Hamas. And with that, uh, I'll ask an open-ended question. What's your perspective on what happened and is there a context to consider here? Um, what happened is horrible. And of course, there's a wider context, but let's we should probably uh, state what what has happened, what's transpired on that first day, more than a thousand Hamas, let's call them what they really are, jihadists, broke through Israel's uh, security border on the Gaza, um, the Gaza-Israel border. They um, had no other intention than to massacre civilians, rape women, desecrate corpses, um, Take uh, take hostages. On that first day alone, probably fourteen hundred Israelis were slaughtered. Uh, some Americans too. Around two hundred civilians were taken hostage. Uh, among them, small children, uh, teenagers, very elderly people. Uh, some commentators have pointed to this incident or that incident as a war crime. It's not that that's wrong, but it's a misleading way of thinking about the Hamas onslaught. The very undertaking constitutes a crime against humanity under the, uh, under the international laws of war because the undertaking, the onslaught, had no other intention than to target civilians, kill civilians, torment, torture, uh, and torment, torture civilians and take them hostage. The whole undertaking is a uh, is a crime against humanity. Um, 
Let me ask this if I can interrupt. Please. You know, um there there is a a sort of a an equivalence being claimed or an obscuration of the difference between the Hamas attack and the idea of Palestinians trying to have an independent state. And that equivalence or that somehow I mean, I think it brings two things. Number one, is Hamas representative of the Palestinians, or or should we as Americans and the world consider this a fringe group? Uh, and I'm not, and I used to say uh, I'll just preface that by uh, saying I thought they were a fringe group. I didn't think they were representative of the Palestinians. But but if not, then why is there? an equivalence by many, especially uh, vividly on campuses in the United States, there's an equivalence of the fight of Palestinians for their own state and this barbaric attack. Yes, well, the first observation to make, Scott, is that um, no fight, no so-called resistance would justify gunning down whole families in their homes and executing small children and wide-scale attack on civilians. Nothing justifies that. Those are uh, crimes under the international laws of war. Is, is Hamas representative? Well, we have to acknowledge that uh, Hamas has been governing the Gaza Strip since 2006. It won elections in 2006, and then it essentially killed its rivals in 2007 and, implo- and imposed a um, totalitarian theocracy over um, over the Gaza Strip. Uh, how much support it has among uh, the people of Gaza? It's hard to specify that it has some support, is for sure, and that there are many Palestinians who um, who suffer under uh, Hamas rule is, is true as well. But it really shouldn't be hard to distinguish between a concern for Palestinian human rights and uh, the the barbarism and butchery of Hamas. Um, there is no justification for um, uh, for the barbarity that Hamas has uh, has exhibited. Um, sh- should Palestinians um, be allowed to uh, pursue their livelihoods and live in freedom? My view is they should. But what is the biggest obstacle? This is the great confusion, Scott, on American campuses. The greatest obstacle to Palestinians living decent lives is Hamas itself and its totalitarian theocracy. Here's something else that's misunderstood. People constantly say on campuses, Israel keeps the Palestinians in the open-air prison of Gaza. Why do they say prison? Because Israel has... um, build a uh, security barrier around Gaza, at least around uh, those parts of the Gaza Strip, which it has border. The Gaza Strip also has a border with Egypt. But this reflects, this way of, of formulating the matter reflects a misunderstanding. Israel, Hamas is not um, striking out at Israel because Israel built a fence and security barriers. Israel built security barrier because Hamas is determined to destroy the state of Israel. And if you don't believe me that, it, that uh, Hamas is determined to destroy the state of Israel, I urge you and your, your listeners to consult 
Hamas's 1988 charter, still easily available online, in which Hamas states very clearly that its raison d'etre is to establish the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine. That means the destruction of uh, the Jewish state. So Israel is engaged in uh, defensive, defensive measures. At, no, at any time since Israel exited the Gaza Strip in 2005, the people of Gaza, well, the leadership of Gaza could have said, um, we're not going to focus on conquering Israel. Let's focus on educating our young people. Let's focus on building industry and jobs. Let's focus on ordinary lives rather than making ourselves warriors for Allah. They've chosen to make themselves warriors for Allah, and Israel rightly defends itself against their religious war. And that brings up a sort of, uh, or even answers the question, what is the goal of the people, uh, the Palestinians? Is it an independent state? Because that's been the holy grail of all these negotiations for decades and multiple presidential administrations in the United States, a two-state solution, uh, which has never been achieved. Is that is the goal an independent state, or is the goal the elimination of Israel and the Jewish people? And I, and I'm afraid to even ask the question, because I fear that the answer is obvious. It's the elimination of Israel and and the Jewish people. Well, uh, we've sort of run an run an experiment. Israel still effectively exercises military control over Judea and Samaria, sometimes called the West Bank, um, one of the territories it seized in the defensive war of 1967. Um, but Israel exercises no control, or it exercised no control over Gaza when it left in 2005. What that means is the Palestinians had that choice. They, they, they had the choice of doing one of the two things you suggested. They could have made a state or they could have focused on war against Israel. That is um, taking back, in their view, Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem. Their choice was to make war on Israel. There, there was nothing to prevent the Palestinians from declaring a state, a city-state, in the Gaza Strip in 2005, or at any moment since 2005. They elected instead to focus on the destruction of Israel. We ran that experiment. Now, the experiment hasn't been run in Judea and Samaria, but Hamas is very strong in Judea and Samaria. And you can see why the Israelis would be extraordinarily hesitant to withdraw uh, military control from Judea and Samaria, given how the experiment unfolded, given that the Palestinians demonstrated that they have much less interest in the state in Gaza than they do in destroying Israel. <laughs> so I, I just want to they'll reiterate something, and I'm sure you agree, that this is not and should not be confused, this recent Hamas attack, as a war on Israel. This is a war against, as a murder and barbarism against civilians. That's not a war against a state. Uh, uh, and I think this is very important because when people uh, sort of make this, this is a war against Israel, That th then it turns into 
a legitimate or or some semi-legitimate attack. But again, as you have stated, this is not really war. Yeah. This what? is simply murdering innocent civilians. It's not military but, targets. Well, well, Scott, I want to agree with you, but uh, but but clarify. Okay. Um, you're absolutely right. This is an assault on civilians, but but it serves the larger purpose. The end goal is still the destruction of uh, of the Jewish state. The belief is that if we is the way to destroy the Jewish state is to uh, kill as many civilians as we can, frighten as many additional civilians as we can, indeed do everything we can. It's so it's a kind of war. It's limitless war. But but your distinction is very important. What it is not is lawful war. Right. In West, in our civilization, we distinguish between just wars and unjust wars. We distinguish between legitimate fighting and illegitimate fighting. So, for example, when Israel is going into the Gaza Strip, the ground operation very likely, Israel will restrict its targets to military targets. Now, its military targets are ambitious. The destruction of Hamas leadership and the annihilation of Hamas's ability to uh, wage war or govern. Those are legitimate military targets, however. Israel will not target civilians. Now, some people will say, surely those civilians will die in Israel's, um, uh, in Israel's just war of self-defense. And that's true, but this is something else that's constantly missed on our campuses. And it's related to your distinction between civilians and legitimate military targets. Hamas also violates the laws of war by locating its offices, its armaments, and its operations, the launching of rockets and missiles, in civilian areas. Right, and this in, is a, this is, I don't know if this is unprecedented, but it's, uh, it's essentially using their own people as shields. I mean, I, and I don't think that this is under. This is certainly not amplified by the by the American it, media. It, it it should be, and it uh, an an old cartoon has been res, has resurfaced recently. It shows uh, probably from thirty or forty years ago. It shows two fighters kneeling, facing one another. Each has a machine gun pointed at the other. One is an Israeli. Behind the Israeli is a baby carriage. The other is a Palestinian in front of the uh, PLO fighter. In front of the PLO fire fighter is the baby carriage. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Israeli is protecting the baby carriage with his body. The PLO fighter is protecting his body with the baby in the baby carriage. This is hugely important to understand what's going on. And under the international laws of war, provided that Israel is focusing on legitimate military targets, which Hamas and its infrastructure are, the deaths of Palestinians, the, the likely deaths of Palestinians, the casualties, the injuries, are as a moral matter and as a legal matter Hamas's responsibility, Hamas's fault for violating the laws of war by converting civilian areas into military areas. So I, I, you know, there, there's so many questions to ask, um, and they're all sort of tragic in their uh, basis. But the the first is we had some momentum in the Middle East, and actually legitimate momentum. 
because uh, of the Trump administration's Abraham Accords, as you were intimately involved in that. So I'd like you to, to explain first, what were the Abraham Accords? That They've been minimized by American media. The Biden administration certainly uh, doesn't give any credit to any of the positive things from the Trump administration. In fact, I think many people thought they would erase the Abraham Accords, but I don't. I don't think that happened. But no. So the question is: number one, what were the Abraham Accords? And number two, how does that relate to the timing of this? Was this attack by Hamas an attempt to stop the successful relationship building between Israel and the other countries in the region? Yes. Well, the short answer. The short answer is yes. Um, it's very likely that Hamas and its nefarious Iranian paymasters in Tehran um, launched this war because they wanted to torpedo the next step in the expansion of the Abraham Accords, namely normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But as you invited me to do, let, let's back up. What were the Abraham Accords? Uh, the Trump administration um, sought and sought intensively to uh, bring about peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, that peace effort actually failed. But out of that failure, sometimes uh, unintended consequences of our policy initiatives every once in a while, they're great, these unintended consequences. One unintended consequence of the failure of the uh, peace initiative was were the Abraham Accords. What were the Abraham Accords? The Trump administration brokered normalization of relations between Israel and two, uh, at first, two Arab countries, Bahrain and United Arab Emirates. We should say that thereby, the Trump administration doubled the number of uh, Arab states that had formal diplomatic relations with Israel in Jordan and Egypt, now also Bahrain and, uh, and United Arab Emirates. Sudan followed, Morocco followed, in a sense, Kosovo followed. We say normalization rather than peace because actually, um, Bahrain and UAE, United Arab Emirates, had never been at war with Israel. Um, part of what enabled the uh, Abraham Accords, although you could devote several shows to the history of the Abraham Accords, but part of what enabled them was that there was a community of interest, hard interest, between, um, among UAE, Bahrain, and Israel. Two, primarily. First was they both felt threatened, and rightly so, by, by the Islamic Republic of Iran, because the Islamic Republic of Iran, much as it um, wishes to destroy Israel, um, also would like to eliminate the Sunni monarchies of, of the Gulf in favor of its Shiite brand of uh, Islam. So Bahrain, UAE, and Israel had common security concerns, a common enemy. But they also had common economic interests. Yes. Dubai is now uh, one of the Emirates, is a bustling port. Bahrain is a fairly prosperous city-state uh, connected by a long causeway to Saudi Arabia. Israel is a high-tech marvel. Uh, Dubai, Bahrain were very eager to take advantage of Israel's high-tech prowess, and Air Israel is very eager to take advantage of the trading opportunities that normalize relations with uh, uh uh, UAE and Bahrain presented, and the months and then years following the Abraham Accords showed a huge increase in trade and cooperation between those three countries, 
Uh, I think it's fair to say that the Abraham Accords could not have taken place had Saudi Arabia not given a green light or at least a, a yellow light. <laughs> Proceed slowly with caution. Um, and in the last couple of months, uh, MBS, the leader of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, has gone public with his desire to uh, normalize relations with Israel. By the way, for the precisely the same two benefits or because of the same two interests, a common enemy in Iran and tremendous economic opportunities for Saudi Arabia in cooperating with uh, Israel. The Biden administration got involved. Uh, that's complicated. But Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, saw American in, uh, influence expanding saw a possible alliance system or and saw an alliance system emerging not formal alliance but partnerships Bahrain UAE Saudi Arabia Israel backed by the United States um, last thing Iran wanted and it seems like they calculated that um, uh, uh, these vicious attacks barbaric is a better word attacks by Hamas uh, which would provoke a uh, uh, intense Israeli response, would undermine progress <laughs> between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And thus it has happened. The king of Saudi Arabia seems to have come out of retirement to pronounce sympathy with the Palestinian people, which should be understood to say with Hamas. This, I think, does not reflect MBS's uh, attitude, but it essentially says uh, we're putting on pause and we don't know for how long any further movement toward normalization. Right. Now, given it's got very, very complicated and given it's c somewhat conjecture, uh, to me that there's two things that, that come to mind. Number one is, will this derail? Uh, no one can predict. At some point, it seems, this, this sort of specific uh, conflict will end at some point. This, this small, limited uh, issue of this Hamas attack. Uh, and then afterwards, will there, in your view, be a sort of re-initiation of this relationship building? But the second question that I would like to sort of ask first is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is given that you said that all of these other Gulf nations are against the, are, are sort of have a common enemy as the United States does in Iran. And Iran is the one clearly instigating and funding uh, the attacks that we've just seen by Hamas. Is there no possibility of having an alliance of the Gulf nations against the Iran-initiated Hamas attacks, or is that simply unrealistic and I don't know what I'm talking about? No, uh, well, let's begin with your second question first. Um, actually, the, 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 the so-called Saudi deal, um, at least as MBS conceived it, um, would have actually strengthened security commitments between the United States and Saudi Arabia. It's part of what made it controversial. Uh, um, MBS wanted more highly sophisticated American weapons, including F-35s. He wanted a civil uh, nuclear program supported by the United States. 
and he wanted formal security guarantees. That amounts to a partnership against, again, Tehran. So um, it's possible, it's not only thinkable, but it was being very seriously contemplated by the Biden administration. Would have run into some troubles in uh, in the House, uh, in the Congress, on both sides of the aisle for different uh, for different reasons. But it um, it is it is definitely uh, thinkable. Um, as far as um, could some sort of renewal that's in Israel's interest and American interest arise out of the conflict? Well, it it. it it depends. Again, the short answer is it could, but there's a couple considerations here. First, I hope that the conflict remains um, restricted to a single theater. I believe Israel um, uh, faces a long and intensive battle, a month, two months, in uh, eradicating Hamas from the Gaza Strip. Um, others, um, uh, think this is an opportunity for Israel to open up a second front and at last deal a decisive blow to Hezbollah, which is another uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Iran, that one located in southern Lebanon. Um, I don't say Israel couldn't do it, but um, but I um, I think that would be stretching the Israeli uh, army, and my own um, assessment is that it, uh, it would be best for Israel to to concentrate on on the first arena, but it's but Israel may not have that choice. Right, Hezbollah I mean, could open up a second arena. Syria could open up a third arena. Um, the Hamas on in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank could open up a fourth arena. And just today, earlier today, we learned that uh, the Hutus, who are uh, in located in Yemen, supported by Iran, fired. Uh, uh, crude cruise missiles, it, it seems, in, in Israel's direction. Um, now, suppose that the war is restricted to, uh, more or less restricted to the Gaza Strip. There is no love lost between Hamas and the Saudi elites, the Emirati elites, the Bahraini elites, uh, the Egyptian elites. For, for Egypt, Egypt recognizes that Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood for the Palestinians, and al-Sisi in Egypt uh, regards the Muslim Brotherhood as mortal enemies. So while I believe that the Arab-Sunni powers do have to placate an increasingly restive populace, uh, the populace sides with, uh, with the Palestinian cause, the leaders, I think, would like to see a decisive Israeli victory over Hamas, and I believe that uh, the leaders see the Hamas onslaught on Israel as evidence that Iran is the principal source of instability in the Middle East. And my guess is that the leaders, You're as talking we about say, the, but, excuse me, the leaders of the Gulf states. Yeah, the leaders of the Gulf states, right. the leaders Egypt, of Egypt. Uh, you know. Exactly. I believe they see uh, their conviction is confirmed that Iran is their enemy that Iran causes uh, instability. And so, yes, it's, it is possible. It's possible uh, after, the, after the guns go quiet, after Israel succeeds in its war aims, that there will be another effort, a renewed effort, to uh, establish improved relations between Israel and, uh, uh, and, and the Sunni Arabs because of a deepened appreciation 
of their community of their community of interest in opposing Iran. However, that that's really the most hopeful scenario. Um, there is going to be tremendous tragedy and loss of life, and uh, no one can say with confidence how this is going to play out mm -hmm. in the coming months. Why don't the nations, particularly Egypt, but the other Gulf nations, why why will they uh, repeatedly, seemingly, refuse to accept refugees from Gaza? Is that because they don't want to be a... Uh, they don't want those people in their countries? Or is it because they don't want to allow the defusing of the situation that would perhaps in, in, uh, indirectly help Israel's effort? What, what is the core reason here? Uh, the, there are a couple of main reasons. One, um, there is a tribal dimension to uh, 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 the Arab Islamic world. Um, Islam knits the various Arab nations together, but the, the tribalism, we might call it now nationalism, divides them. As I've said, there's never been any much love between the Palestinians and the leaders of these various countries. Um, second consideration, um, none of the Sunni Arabs want to import into their countries more Islamists, Hamas style. So there's the question of the Hamas, uh, Hamas rulers of the Gaza Strip, but then there's the question with which we began, sympathy for Hamas among Palestinians. Uh, the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians do not want Muslim, uh, Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers, additional Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers in their country. And finally, um, and for this I also I fault the United Nations, I fault the Europeans, to some extent European governments. There is a widespread perception among uh, in the Arab world, among the people, ordinary people, that any Palestinians who left Gaza or left the West Bank to become citizens in other Arab countries would betray, would be betraying the cause of resistance. <laughs> they would be traitors. Their job is to stand strong on the border with the Zionist entity and keep up the fight for the destruction of it. So uh, no, no Saudi leaders don't want to be seen, right. uh, even though they don't have sympathy for the Hamas struggle, as uh, undercutting it directly in that way by doing is what you suggest, Scott, the humane thing in allowing people to start over their lives and focus on caring for and educating their children and rearing a generation devoted to peace and freedom and democracy. Right. Let's shift a, a tiny bit to... Uh the situation for American citizens who were killed, uh, roughly 30 as far as I, my reading goes, and more than a dozen American hostages. We don't know if they're alive or dead, of course. What is your assessment of Biden's, the Biden administration's reaction? Uh, because as, a, as an American observer myself, uh, it seems like there's no strong reaction there's not even a strong, uh, neither military nor even verbal, focused on this heinous attack on Americans. We have not seen this sort of level of attack of American civilians frequently uh, since 
And uh, so there we're talking about more than 20 years. What, why, what is your assessment of the reaction? Is there something going on behind the scenes? Is it that he doesn't want to interfere with the Israeli uh, military planning? Because we certainly don't hear much on the news about how this was a heinous murder of innocent American citizens. It is an attack on Americans. So uh, first, I do want to give credit where credit is due. Biden's now given two um, major addresses to the American people. One uh, last week, uh, again last night in the Oval Office, um, in which he has affirmed Israel's right to defend itself. In the first speech, he envisaged uh, supporting Israel in achieving a swift, decisive, and overwhelming victory. Uh, we've stationed two carrier strike force groups in the Eastern Med, each that, that means 10 or 11 ships in each group, um, it, cruisers, destroyers, submarines, along with the aircraft carriers. We've repositioned Marines to the area. I think that's intended as a deterrent to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Having said all that, I quite agree with you. Missing from even what is strong rhetoric is mention of the 30 or so Americans who were slaughtered in cold blood by the Hamas monsters, and missing from the discussion the, uh, let's, 10 or so um, hostages, may, maybe more. Now, you'll recall, Scott, uh, we can recall that in 1986, after, um, after the b bombing of a Berlin nightclub, which uh, out of approximately 200 killed, three were Americans, President Ronald Reagan ordered the bombing of, of targets in Libya. After the killing of three Americans, no hostages, no hostages taken. Um, one has to hope that behind the scenes, the Biden administration is, um, is planning to take uh, action because it is indecent for a great power to... Uh, to, st to treat as somebody else's military operation exclusively um, a response to um, barbaric attacks in which its own citizens were killed and uh, unlawfully um, awfully taken hostage. I want to quickly add, though, that it has always been Israel's military doctrine that Israel will fight its own fights. Right. That's, That's not inconsistent true. with taking support from the United States. The United States over the years, over the decades, has been generous and essential in providing Israel military aid. But Israel has never asked the United States to uh, risk the life of uh, of American soldier in its defense. It risks its own soldiers' lives. But, but your point stands, and then I embrace your point. This is not only Israel's battle, because Americans were killed. Right. Americans are held hostage. I mean, to me, this is an abrogation of leadership. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak with hyperbole, but to me, this is an overt display of incredible weakness for the United States to pretend somehow that, I, I mean, we're ignoring as a nation that this was an attack of and murdering of American civilians. Uh, that, that is simply not even in the news cycle, from my view, uh, and I, I'm shocked at it. Uh, and I think it, it it establishes sort of a new precedent 
in, in my adult lifetime that uh, somehow that's not a big deal because uh, and, and I don't think that's unfair because there yeah. is no response. You know, uh, the, positioning ships off the coast as a deterrent, which is which is true, and it's exactly what you articulated, is is totally separate from a response to the murder of American citizens. And I find it shocking that the U.S. Congress isn't all over this, that American students aren't all over this on campus <laughs> instead of their inane protests <laughs> with their masks on hiding. Uh, it's, it's an embarrassment. I mean, at many times, and I hate to say it so negatively, but I find myself wondering what, what, what kind of moral or ethical compass is our country uh, displaying right now. And it's, it's a sign of incredibly weak leadership that there is essentially silence uh, with no action whatsoever and not even verbal uh, response to the murder of Americans. Um, I want to finish with this question, which is very disturbing, but, you know, talking about students and okay, uh, free speech on campuses. I, I for one, uh, am, co and I know you also uh, have personal experience with the uh, with the issue. And I am absolutely for the free exchange of ideas on campuses. But I think in this case, uh, there's something that that is implied by what we see on campuses, and the implication to me is that, uh, and I don't think it's just isolated to this, hatred against Jews in the United States, and I'm not even talking about the rest of the world, is on the rise, or is it simply that it's always been there, it's never been decreased, it's been hidden, and uh, these kinds of things uh, expose the truth. These kinds of these kinds of crises, if you will, just like to me, uh, the COVID pandemic, I always say it exposed things for what were really there and were hidden. What's going on here? What is your perception? Is hatred of Jews on the rise or is simply it's always been there? This is a fact of life in the United States and elsewhere, I, even though that sounds very cynical. Uh, what's your take? Um. Hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism, there seems as if there's always been, but it's changed in the United States over the last 50 years or so. Uh, in the 1960s, um, the, uh, the most virulent concentrated anti-Semitism in the country was uh, on the right. Today, it tends to be on the left. It has migrated across the political uh, spectrum. Um, I believe it's actually fostered by our uh, institutions of higher education, and it has a lot to do with actually Israel, I believe. Why? Um, there's hardly a more popular idea, especially on our elite campuses, but, but by the way, you can find this notion taught in K through 12, that America is divided into oppressors and oppressed. The oppressors are uh, the white people, especially white men. Uh, and as a result of leading America, leading the country throughout its history, uh, white men have turned the United States into an oppressor nation. 
That means anybody who allies with the United States, depends on the United States, participates with the United States, is part of, part of this conspiracy against the oppressed. I believe that a lot of the anti-Israelism that we see on campus, different from strict anti-Semitism, actually is bound up with the anti-Americanism that campuses teach. I agree with that. Israel is resented so much, I think, not in the first place always because it's Jewish, but because it's proud of being aligned with the United States of America more than, uh, more than most any other country out there. Israelis are proud of their alignment with the uh, United States. So um, what we can also, sometimes we can call it anti-Semitism, I called it anti-Israelism, which I've connected to anti-Americanism. Um, I put a lot of the blame at the curriculum that is propounded throughout the American educational system, which is uh, to an appalling degree anti-American. Yes, I agree. I think the most frightening change in our lifetimes is that there is a massive expansion of anti-Americanism in the younger generation. And uh, in fact, in my view, and I can't prove this, but most anti-Americanism is inside America. When you travel, I travel quite a bit internationally, as I'm sure you do, there is, in the Western nations, certainly a, a tremendous amount of admiration. Uh, we see it by people coming to the United States and doing all kinds of things to come here legally or illegally. Uh, that's clearly voting by their feet, if you want to use that phrase. The anti-Americanism is, is though, as you mentioned, uh, prominent on American campuses, shrouded in complete ignorance by a younger generation that has zero historical perspective. They lived in this massive era of prosperity in the United States. These are people, many of whom were not even born during 9-11, let alone understand what the USSR was, uh, the Cold War, the Berlin Wall. There's no perspective here. And it's also, uh, I think, a confluence of what you're saying with this general pop, this sort of focus on identity politics and identity. Yes. It's a very divisive. You can't have a country where everyone is divided by their own uh, individual identity. You can't have a coherent country. You can't have a peaceful country. You can't have a successful country if everyone views someone else in this, what you your word was, tribalistic way. Uh, or we will turn into a Middle East. And, I, and I, I, I'm very fearful... Uh, of that, we need a we need a new set of people in the younger generation, particularly, who are pro-American, who understand the positives of this country, uh, and uh, we need to teach them. And that's a burden for people like you and me. Uh, and uh, we're doing our best. So, with that, Peter, uh, we could go on forever because uh, yeah, we could. This this is really both a a, a sort of a frightening era in in the in the United States in the world, but also it, it has revealed a lot of problems that we need to fix, uh, or we're not going to be living uh, in a country, let alone giving our children the country that we had. So, uh, with that, I'll I'll thank you very much for your time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna 
ask you again, certainly, to come back, and uh, this will continue, unfortunately, but we need to address these issues. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to Independent Truths with Scott Atlas. If you want to find out more about today's guest, Dr. Peter Berkowitz, check out his website, peterberkowitz.com. Follow Peter's essays in Real Clear Politics and elsewhere. And don't forget, please subscribe to our show on YouTube as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, and anywhere else you're listening to podcasts these days. And I'll see you next time.